Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. How are y'all doing today? Yeah? My name is Brian Francoise. I'm the Director of Community Engagement, and I'm so glad to be welcome, welcoming you here to the world of the play. I do have a co-host today that I want to introduce to you. Um, I'm going to let her speak for herself. Hello, everybody. My name is Dominique Pearson. I am the Development Associate here at Everyman. I've been here for a few months. It's pretty wonderful. And we have been doing this World of Play panel series for how long, Mark? Four years. And we have different types of topics and experiences. And we try to invite an, a group of people who saw the play, but try to find the resonances and things that we also want to talk about. So with no further ado, can I introduce to you our moderator, uh, the director of the Center for Emerging Media, uh, a city treasure, in my opinion, Mark Steiner. Give it up. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. So, uh, welcome. Good to have you here at the World of the Play. Um, letting you all know, I have to do the same thing myself in just like 10 seconds, which is turning off my cell phone, or at least turning the sound down. Uh, we're taping this, and everything that you say will be heard by somebody outside of here on our podcast. Um, and so we used to put it on the radio show, but now it'll be up on the podcast sometime within the next week. Um, so it'll all be there. So let me introduce the panel and tell you what we're going to do. So the very end is Daniela Anastasian, uh, who has directed a film called I Am Yupik for ESPN's uh, 30 for 30 Shorts. She had a feature done, her first feature, Redemption of General Buck Naked, received the uh, Sundance Award for Best Cinematography. Uh, and she recently directed Run, Mama, Run, about an elite runner at the Olympics. Next to her is Mara Callahan, who is deputy editor and arts editor at Baltimore Beat, uh, and before that at the City Paper, where she was the performing arts editor. And she um, co-produced with Rebecca Kirkman this incredible article called Arts, Scene, a Reckoning, which I did a podcast, I did a podcast with them about that, that Brittany Oliver, her other guest here, was on as well. That was just an amazing piece unearthing the misogyny inside of our arts movement in this city, which uh, I hope they do more of. And to my immediate right is Brittany Oliver. And Brittany has also been on my show numerous times. She's a, one of our most important race and gender justice activists, I think, in our community. She created and founded Hollaback Baltimore, and now Not Without Black Women, which is becoming an organization just that is at the forefront of the struggle uh, around racial justice and women's rights in the city. And uh, it's good to have her on the panel. And I want to just uh, shout out to Dr. Kimberly Moffat, who was going to be here, who's an amazing thinker and activist, but her mother is extremely ill, and she had to go to North Carolina uh, to be with her mom, or she would be here with us today. So I just want to wish, wish her well. So welcome. So we're going to begin this. And part of what the title of this piece today we're doing is Heroines in Our Midst. And one of the things that... I thought about in this play, how many people here, everybody saw the play, right? Okay. Um, or most everybody anyway. Um, and so about this play is really interesting. So there are four characters in this play, um, three women who are actually existed. The fourth woman is an amalgam of a number of Haitian women. And I just wanted to point this out because I think it's important to begin to understand because one of the greatest lines in the play had to do with black women being left out of every picture that ever was painted about our world. And there were women inside that revolution. Princess Amethyste, Lazare, Sanate Belair, and a woman named Cecile Fatiman who actually began the Haitian Revolution. She was the one who started it, but she's never in our history books. So this woman in this play was the amalgam of all those women. And I think it's just important to kind of toss that out here. And I also think it's interesting that this play, and let's start with this, this play was about one of the most tumultuous periods in modern history. The American Revolution had taken place, take, the Haitian Revolution was taking place, the French Revolution was taking place. Uh, people were rising up. Women, in the terms of the West, the women's movement kind of began because of the French Revolution in many ways. Um, and we are, and then this play was put on now, this month, while we're in the midst of Me Too and the eruptions in America, which I found almost like a prescient moment to have this kind of play taking place at this time. 
So I'm just curious, let's just start there before we get into some of the harder things that you all have mentioned about what this means. I mean, how relevant this is for this moment that we, that what this play was saying to us about we, where we are and how we would interpret it that way. Who wants to begin? Anybody can start. Mara, do you want to begin? Well, I think uh, I think that we, you know, we were just talking about how um, the play really brings up these questions about the role of art in in protest and in revolutions, and um, I think that's also coming up with the Me Too movement, um, partly because we're talking a lot about art and uh, what art we should accept and what art we should reject, um, and I think that. That conversation doesn't directly come up in the play, but it made me think about those questions a lot, and how um, when we think about what art, like if we decide to never watch a Woody Allen movie again, um, or a Harvey Weinstein film again, um, what are we left with? And uh, you know, I think about well, we could read Olympe de Gouges plays, um, we could uh, see Lauren Gunderson plays. Um, you know, I think I keep thinking about how uh, this makes more room for more women, uh, more people of color to be seen if we decide to not uh, embrace art by toxic people. Um, and I was thinking about that a lot while I was seeing the play, especially because it's by the, the most produced playwright in America this year. That's an interesting fact. Brittany? Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Um, thanks for having me. So I, I think that right now we are in a, a critical point in history. Um, we're making history right now. Even, si even sitting in this room having this discussion, this is history. Um, and so I think that with the play, I, it, it just come at the right time. I, I ended up seeing the play... Um, earlier in the, in the week, and you know, it's really important to understand that national issues that kind of, um, with Me Too specifically, starting with celebrities, um, Harvey Weinstein. I think that we are seeing a trend now where it's starting to trickle down locally in community, um, and it's causing uh, different communities to have these conversations about what. Um, you know, rape culture and, and how do we deal with that and pertaining to, to women. Um, when you talk about women, you know, when it comes to rape culture, you also bring it up, it also comes up for other people because men experience, um, you know, rape and, and others. So I think that this is a, a crucial point in time and I think that this is, I actually think this is a trend that's gonna keep happening until uh, there's there's a silence I feel um, especially in Baltimore um, around you know me too it's not it's not anything new for folks who have been who've worked in the area I've worked in race and, gen and gender um, justice movement for over several years now so I think that the national talk is just providing opportunities for us to deal with this stuff locally and really start asking having these kitchen, you know, these kitchen table talks, you know, during the holiday seasons and, you know, what, what's happening in our families and our social circles, um, in our movements, in our social justice movements as well. Uh, so I think that the play, I enjoyed it and I think it comes at a perfect time um, in the 21st century. Danielle. Um, I was really taken with uh, how this play interrogated questions of who gets to tell the story, who gets to have their story told. Um, and I see a lot of parallels with the Me Too movement as well um, as, you know, victims of um, harassment, rape, sexual assault, see their own careers sidelined um, and, and um, you know, abusers and others are sort of left at the table to shepherd their, their stories uh, through. And, and so I think it... Um, I think it's an important conversation we're having about who gets to tell stories and and what stories do they tell and why and um, you know even within the the me too movement there's um, I think there's a really strong and good valid question being asked about well what about the voices of women of color um, their stories 
are sort of like not even allowed to rise to the surface in this conversation too. So I, I think um, I think it's good that a lot of questions are being asked. Let's pick up on the, 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 the last two points you just made, <clears throat> Danielle made. When we talk about women in general, then let's talk about black women in particular. But women in general, when you think of stories, the stories that are not told, one of the things that struck me about this play, we talked about it a bit back there, was that um, the three women who were actually women in history as individuals in this play, no matter how they were portrayed on the, in this particular play, were all brilliant, strong women. And, you know, Marie Antoinette looked at her as this kind of flighty figure in this, not, not that's the right word, but in this play and, and uh, scattered a little. Um, but she actually ran France when Louis didn't know what to do anymore at the end. She was making the decisions about where this was going to go and setting up what was to happen. Charlotte Corday was a brilliant um, thinker and activist. Uh, de Gouges was an abolitionist and playwright and, f and wrote the first great feminist piece that you said, Mara, you had to read when you, when you studied that in college, right? So, that, so that to me was profound about the play is that what came out, what, was, what, be, what you need, should be forced to deal with was the power of women left out of our history and what that means. Anybody can leap up. Well, I think with, with the Me Too movement, people are finally uh, recognizing the name Tarana Burke. Um, Tarana Burke, right. Mm -hmm. um, and she, she started the Me Too movement, I think, 10 years ago, um, but it wasn't a hashtag. Uh, I don't know if hashtags existed 10 years ago. But I don't it, think so. <laughs> um, but it's become a hashtag now, and um, she was featured uh, in the, the, the Time um, Person of the Year, but she wasn't on the cover. Um, even though she is the creator of this movement. Uh, and I think people are finally saying that that's not right. Um, it's still happening, but people are objecting to it. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting. And I think uh, the fact that Marianne Angel, who's the, the Haitian um, revolutionary in the play, um, is a composite character, um, because there's no one single name that the playwright could uh, point to, like she could to Marie Antoinette and Olympe de Gouges, um, is really telling because you know those women weren't recognized back then, so they're certainly not going to be recognized now. Ladies, just sleep in. It makes me sad to hear that and to to think about all of the women throughout history um, whose whose stories have been lost. Um, you know, I think that we, when we write and um, compose our own narratives about history, we have this tendency to choose individuals and say that these are the individuals that were responsible for sweeping social movements. Like, um, I think today a lot of people are comfortable with the narrative of Martin Luther King Jr. as being like the the uh, pinnacle of civil rights movement and it's a it's just a it's just a human tendency i think to lift up individuals and and not think about the you know hundreds of thousands of people who were involved in social movements um, and i think that women and women of color especially get le left out of the narrative so it's it's important to um I don't know, it's important to think about how we construct these narratives and how we talk about them. And um, even in our time today, I think that um, it's important that we don't try to um, hijack the conversation. So I would say that, um, so one thing I think is very interesting, especially right now with the Me Too movement is, um, and I think a couple weeks ago or so, Rosa put the anniversary of um, Rosa Parks of when she um, you know, didn't refuse to move off the bus. Um, she actually, Rosa Parks is actually a sexual assault investigator before she was recognized, before the whole bus thing you know, that happened. So, um, 
you know, it goes to show historically that issues, especially surrounding uh, women of color, especially black women, that we've been talking about these issues for a really, really long time. But there is something, um, you know, I think that people find talking about these types of issues as divisive, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, well, I'm a black woman, you know, I'm a woman, I'm black and I'm woman. And so, um, and I can't do anything about about that. These are just the way, this is just the way that, um, you know, different issues intersect with my life. And I think that it, you just have to be really, um, you know, whether you are, at any table that you're at, right, in terms of narratives. You just gotta say, you, you gotta have people that are just not afraid of, of changing the conversation and shattering through that status, that status quo. It's one of the reasons why uh, Not Without Black Women was created um, back in uh, this past summer because it is, you have to be very vulnerable. This work requires me and a lot of people to be very vulnerable. Um, you know, with that, I think that Me Too is showing that. I think that the win in Alabama is showing that with the significance of African Americans that came out and voted. That is a perfect example of how when you mobilize uh, marginalized communities, what you can really do. When you really focus, when you really empower everybody. Um, and also too, it, it, when you do that, you also learn more about other intersections, right? So one thing is voter oppression. I worked at the ACLU for over five years, and one of the things that we focused on was voter oppression in the state of Maryland during the election time. It happened, folks. It happened. So when you, um, when you empower women, especially black women, you empower the entire nation. So, so let's, let's, let's talk about how you control the narrative now. If we're writing a play about now, sometime in the future, and controlling this narrative. We're talking about what, what's happening with the Me Too movement. Uh, and sexual harassment, we're talking about it in the, in the, in the room back there, that how many people have ever heard the name Paulette Barnes? Well, Paulette Barnes was a black woman who was a clerk at the EPA. Before sexual harassment was against the law, it was a law at all, she's the one who brought the first lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court in 1986 that puts sexual harassment on the books as something that could be litigated and dealt with legally. A black woman clerk who refused the sexual advances of her boss at the Environmental Protection Agency. And then came Anita Hill, like five years after that decision. But, and that's the stuff we don't, those things were important. Not that, you know, that we don't acknowledge that or don't know it, that that doesn't become the first thing that we realize about our history that you just said a moment ago, Mara, about uh, who created Me Too. Mm -hmm. You know, and how we, those things get lost. And we let those things get lost. So what does it mean that they're A, that they're lost, and B, how do we not lose them? Well, what, we'll come out there in just a second. Let me do, I know people are anxious. We're going to get you right into the conversation in just a second. Good. Well, journalists can write about them. <laughs> And recognize that the person who, uh, you know, um, the person who is uh, who who is playing the biggest role in a movement may not be the person that history would teach you to expect, um, and that uh, we should pay attention to um, as many stories as we can. Uh, I, that, I mean, that's all something that I and uh, my co-editors. Um, at the Baltimore Beat are thinking about a lot and that we we all did at City Paper uh, where we worked until recently. Um, and yeah, I think, I'm, I mean, I wish that, I think a lot of media outlets are thinking about that now. I think a lot, are, a lot, a lot of them are also deliberately not thinking about that. Um, but that's, that's a, one way is for the media to think about how uh, these narratives will continue on in posterity and, and what they will look like uh, 50 years down the line. Just leap in. Don't wait for me. <laughs> Whoever wants to jump. I mean, how do we do this? How do we get this at the forefront so it's not something we went, we go, oh, actually, the woman who did, the person who started this revolution, or started this movement, started this, what happened to us, the person who did it was a woman. 
that we don't even know her name. So I have a couple of suggestions. Uh, one, I would say, um, number one is supporting organizations such as Not Without Black Women. <laughs> That's one, um, because we are we focus specifically um, our issues on black women, um, but we work with uh, all types of people, you know, to help us in our mission. Um, we work with men. We work with white women. We work. I mean, whoever. Do you support black women? That's the question. Yes or no. If it's yes, then then we're we're already ahead ahead of the game. Um, I think a second thing that we can do we can start doing is being willing to ask questions when given the different type of spaces that you occupy you occupy or that you're in right. So starting small, starting um, if you have a um, I don't know if you have a hobby or something and. Um, you, or um, some kind of a social group that you have, or um, especially when it comes around decision making, if you look around the room and look around the table and you don't see, you see everyone that looks like you, there's something's off about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at be willing, be brave, ask a question, um, be like, you know, this is great, but we're, it look, I don't think we have everyone at the table here. Um, can we, Investigate that a little bit. What's what's going on? Do we need to do some outreach to communities of color? What can we do to make sure that we're being inclusive, right? Um, so that's those are two things. Um, a third thing that I was I would suggest is uh, history, learning about our history, especially especially in Baltimore because Baltimore is a predominantly black city. Um, doing some catch some reading on how. Uh, Baltimore has um, experienced uh, systemic uh, racism, you know, for decades, right? The uprising, the Baltimore uprising happened like two years ago. And there are still people asking me now, why did that happen? It's just like, what do you mean why that happened? (laughs) It's happened because people who are um, underserved in our communities, you know, have felt like, have felt shut out of the conversation and have felt like their needs have not been addressed. Um, One of the things I can tell you from being out during the uprising, I remember taking, I do photography as a hobby. I take photos, um, communications is really my field. And I remember people saying to me for the first time, this is my first time coming out of my neighborhood to downtown Baltimore. This is my first time marching in a protest. I've never been a part of a protest before. That is what I think the is what I think the conversation is missing from when we talk about how do we change Baltimore, that's what's missing. How do we empower people who don't have the same amount of access as myself as a lot of us in this firm? I know you want to leap in. Will you tee up the question for me? I'm so engrossed in what everyone's saying here. <laughs> Well, I, again, I, I think I was thinking about the work that you do um, as a filmmaker and the role that plays. I mean, this play in many ways was about the power of art, about the power of writing, about the power of how we get the message out and how we change that narrative. How do we change? How do we control? How do women control? How do we control the story so that it's not always someone else telling a story and leaving the people out, yeah. leaving women out of these stories. Well, one of the things that I found really compelling about the play was the, the way that the, the playwright sort of externalized a question that I have in my head all the time about being a creator, of, you know, a writer, a filmmaker, um, which is sort of, sometimes I just sort of think, what's the point? Is, you know, there's so much content out there. There's so much writing out there, stories, TV, you know, there's just there's so many narratives and stories out there. What's the point of contributing more to this? Um, and I think that you know, I just thought it was so effective the way she put that um, sort of internal debate that you know probably she as a playwright has as well in in um, the storylines of these characters. Um, one of them who was sort of challenging um, the role of playwriting and. Um, whether that could actually, you know, do anything good, and another one who was a uh, um, spending her life as a revolutionary and much more politically engaged and, you know, an activist, um, 
and I think that I, I really appreciated the way um, I think the play reaffirmed the importance of storytelling um, as you know a way to understand our times and a way to mobilize people um, and a way to um, a way to like as like a, a sort of a fundamental part of being alive and understanding the world around us and that, that it does have the capacity to create change. Um, so for me, that was one of the things about the play that I appreciated the most. It made me want to go home and write. Um, but it, you know, at the same time, it, it, it made me realize that as a, as a woman, it is important that I write. You know, it just sort of made me feel like my voice is important. It was just a reminder of that. Um, and so, yeah, does that answer the question? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, so, so, I mean, you know, I was thinking about this, you were speaking, you all were speaking, <clears throat> that, I mean, how important is it, let's take one character in this play for a moment, uh, Degouge, the woman who was the, the center of, actually, maybe was in some parts of the play, that, um, that we are connected to women like her mm -hmm. and her story, but we don't know her story. I mean, think about what she did, the manifesto she wrote that we were talking about mm -hmm. uh, for complete equality of women um, back in 1790, that she produced an abolitionist play in 1783. <clears throat> Nobody was producing uh, abolitionist plays in 1783. She couldn't get a stage in the 1790s and had to push <clears throat> for that. I mean, that, that, but that to me is, is how important is it to understand that history to control our future? Mm. Well, I think it goes back to the question, you know, we were talking about, or I think I brought up the example of the civil rights movement, how we have this tendency to lionize MLK Junior as like this like sole force who was responsible for all of this change, and I think it's a it's a myth that's perpetuated, and it um, does a disservice to our understanding of the way social change happens. Um, and I think it, it it's important to understand our history so that as we live through our current history, we have an understanding that this you know there is a there's a tradition of activism and protest and community movements and you know, uh, movements like Black Lives Matter that have a history um, and that come from, um, you know, several generations of activism and that there's a lineage. Um, and I think it's important, I, I think it's important to understand um, social change as being movement-based um, so that, you know, we understand how to create change now mm -hmm. and in the future. One of the um, parts of the play that I thought was really interesting was um, after Charlotte Corday um, uh, kills Marat uh, and uh, the Marianne Angel goes to see her in prison before she's about to get her head cut off. And um, uh, Marianne uh, tells Charlotte that people are actually um, uh, turning Jean-Paul Marat into a martyr, um, which uh, you know, I, I don't think he's really seen as now. Um, uh, he he was definitely um, considered a martyr at the time, and I think that that's another thing that narratives can kind of embody. We can, uh, in, in writing and in art, we can think about how um, all at once how something is understood when it happens and how that changes over time, and that's... That's one one thing that I really loved about the play was how it um, it took how this was um, received when she stabbed him in his bathtub, um, what she wanted out of doing that, um, and then how it is felt now. Um, because I think she's more often seen as a hero. Mm. Um, so... I think uh, one theme that kept coming up for me uh, from watching uh, the play was um, how often each character 
were how they were asking questions about around their decision making. And the reason why that stuck out to me is because I think that um, in movement work, um, I think that we need to, a lot of times I think that activists and advocates, we move really fast. Issues are changing all the time. Every day in the news there's something different, right? To just be like upset about. <laughs> um, and so I think that one of the lessons that this play um, really made not made clear, because I have always have felt it, but just reaffirmed affirmed me in thinking, is that we should always think of what are way, what are what has been done already, and what ha would have a discussion about what hasn't worked, mm -hmm. like what's worked, what what uh, tactics and strategies and goals that we've had before that just has not worked and got us to where we are, you know, where are not getting us where is not getting us to where we want to be. Um, because then when you have that dialogue, then you know what to look for, right? You can restructure re, uh, goals and come up with new creative ideas on how to do things differently um, and also continue to do things that has, that's worked. Um, if you skip out on that and don't have those conversations, how do you know what you're, how do you know what, what you're working, working towards? How do you measure success? What does that look like? What does the results look like of what we're looking for? So for me, that's another theme of the play that it gave me is that a lot of the, the characters, they were able to kind of check each other, mm -hmm. you know, like that, that checking in and, and they're like, um, you know, I don't think this is a good idea or, you know, think about the future or think about the, it just, it creates that dialogue that I think is neat, that's very much needed right now in our, in our movements. Another thing, two more things here, then we're gonna go out. How many people here like to say something in the audience have things they wanna, are, are dying to get out? Nobody? Well, good. Well, you can start us all off in a moment. Um, and um, is, is that Mariana Angel was one of the key characters in this play for many reasons. For confronting, uh, through the playwright's eyes, the other women who were white by being left out of the story completely. And that, to me, was a really key component of all this. Um, and I think that, that dialogue, in some ways, that conversation is still happening. Where we are now. Yeah. So you know, so taking from these characters' points of view, these characters actually live now. In my mind, there's women who could be any one of those people that were on stage um, that I know. Um, so what does that say to us? That particular piece of it. I mean, I think before we went out here, each one of you, Mara, you mentioned that earlier. You mentioned that when we were uh, it, one of the first things when we sat back there. So where? You being Brittany, I'm sorry. Um, that, yeah. So, what is that? What was that coming out of that play, and what does it say about right now? Right. Well, um, Marianne Angel is like th throughout the whole play, she's checking these other women because you know they're fighting for uh, for their revolution um, to save a country that is running uh, slave colonies, slave colonies that are enslaving um, this woman's uh, people, um, and we have a lot of valuable women um, like like Brittany who do that for movements now, who make sure that you know they're in check and they're not losing sight of who really matters. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I think that what it means right now, because it is it market, I mean, you hit it, it, it is happening right now. Um, and I felt her, I felt that character. Um, <laughs> I think that one of the biggest ways that we, you know, that could be really helpful um, is because when when Black women speak up about issues, there are different. There are a lot of layers, you know, um, racial layers, gender, class, um, et cetera. You know, we have a lot of different intersections, so it makes us more vulnerable. It makes um, the backlash, the consequences for speaking up. Um, a lot more dangerous, you know, um, in ways that can affect our livelihoods. And so, um, it, you know, it always feels great when, um, and I have a lot of people who support, you know, the work that, I've, that I do, and, um, but really just being um, willing to take on some of that emotional labor, because it's not, um, it's, it's also, you know, um, 
just work that we're that we have to put in and we have to again being vulnerable um it has consequences when you're a woman of color when you're when you're doing that publicly um so i think that the best way that um folks can be helpful i guess is just by um again like having this inviting you know black women to be a part of the conversation i'm here you know speaking with you all right now and um, and Mark has always like invited me, you know, for talks, and we've known each other for a while. So, and that that's helpful because this, um, you know, work, um, this, you know, this is being recorded. This is a part of history. We're we're creating history right now. Um, so, just always finding ways to um, making sure that uh, Black women are a part of the conversation and um, and stand up for us. Like, if you see something wrong, or if you hear about something wrong, or um, it'd be really great to say something on our behalf because it, when we do it, um, and we've been doing it for decades, right? Um, and there are a lot of people who just, I mean, society, generally speaking, just does not listen to um, not only black women, but indigenous women, um, you know, um, women who work in, um, in, in the hotel and, you know, industry and um, who work on farms. I mean, like, there's a lot. So um, just using your, your privilege, your platforms, your access, your resources to say, this is not right. I stand with my sister. Danielle, you want to jump in? I just feel... Um, it, this made me think about a question that I face a lot of times as a filmmaker. Um, when I think about like what story do I tell and whose stories do I tell? Um, and I often, um, I don't know, I, there are stories, so I'm working on a story right now about uh, first time uh, female political candidates who um, have started to, um, you know, become engaged in the political process. I've really spurred on by the 2016 uh, presidential election. Um, and I feel really um, grateful to be able to tell the stories of the, the three candidates that we're following um, because not only, like it, it's it's very inspiring to to see people just stand up and decide to, to make change. Um, and we're following three very different women. One of them is um, you know, a candidate for school board. The other is a um, woman who's running for state senate. And the other um, ran um, to be, um, she ran for Virginia's House of Delegates. Um, and all three of the women whose stories we're telling are just, I'm just like humbled by the amount of work that they put forth to actually create change. And I, as a storyteller, I feel, I, I just feel really um, good about telling those stories. And I feel like y you definitely, um, by choosing certain stories, I think you're you're choosing to put you know, to privilege narratives and to put them out there. Um, so I, I just hope that I can continue to do work that um, isn't really sort of about me, um, but it's about other people and just like amplifying their voices. I mean, I think we're at a place that, I mean, that we really have to think about and, and push the idea that women and people of color, but we're talking about women right now, have to be in every conversation. That's part of the problem, is that we pigeonhole people, right? We ended up having, well, the only time black folks were in a discussion, let's say in Baltimore, if it has to do with race, as opposed to being anything, and or if you are working institution, whether it's Everyman Theater or it's T. Rowe Price or whatever that is, that women and people of color have to be at 
at the heart of it as well as everybody else. And that's, that doesn't happen yet. The question is how you take, this play is about a revolutionary moment. And in some ways we're in a very, I forget which one of you said it in the other room, but we're on a precipice. I think you said it, Danielle, we're on a, we're on a precipice. We're in the same kind of place of huge change and it could go backwards like it did in 1877 when Reconstruction was destroyed or it could go forward. And so, I mean, we are at that precipice. And I think, just reflecting before we got in the audience here, what the, what the, what the role of women should be and what men should be thinking as well. Because if men are con actually control it at the moment, for the most part, um, it's up to us to let it go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it's going to open up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to build something, we're trying to start a movement. Um, or create some kind of big project, um, and all the people that you're working with are the same kind of people. I mean, if they're all white men, uh, I mean that's not only a, a moral issue. You know, the fact that your uh, your whatever you're building isn't going to be reflective of the world, but it's going to be really boring. Like it's just it's just not going to have any any anything interesting because everyone that you're working with is. Uh, comes from the same kind of privilege and is going to be blind about certain things and won't have other people around to check them. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, women of color, uh, uh, trans women, um, uh, non-cisgender -cis people, queer people um, have to be involved in everything. So when I come out here, I'm going to hold the mic just so I can control the sound. I'm not trying to control you, just the sound. It's not my bag to control other people, but uh, let's stand up and... Um, it's just so interesting, the play, I mean, in everything. It just goes back to, and I keep thinking about the beginning of time. When did women um, become the, the homemakers and the men had to go out and kill the animals so that people could eat and food. I mean, where do we come to, how do we begin to come to that, you know, men were controlling and women were underneath them and how do we change that? And whether it's black and white and men and women or how do we become colorless, genderless, um, egalitarian completely, I mean, it's just, it's it's never you know um, and where in history was it ever e completely egalitarian and each age comes of a different minority that comes out you know and it's different people I mean it's wonderful that women are coming out and women's voices but yeah now men are feeling threatened and what happens with with that whole issue. And 100 years from now, will the men then have to be uprising? When does it, it's the pendulum that always swings back and forth. Can we ever reach you know, that, that neutrality, that equality, that for everyone? Because that's what we're all asking for, is for everyone. Let's start where you started. I mean, it's interesting. Go ahead, Danielle. I have such a pessimistic view of humanity and human history. I don't, I mean. I mean, you know, we've lived a lot longer yeah. just, you know, saying that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 38. Um, I think that's enough years to cultivate some pessimism. Uh, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think, like, if you look at human history, I mean, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a time where there was, like, true equality just because we, that, what we do to each other. We fight for power and we subjugate each other. And that's not to say that, you know... I just think we, we have to be vigilant and understand that like these um, human tendencies to oppress each other, we just sort of for, will forever need to be on the lookout for it. And that it's not a reason not to fight. It is, a, it's, it is exactly the reason to fight um, and to hold the, you know, the ideals that, that we have to try to... Yeah. So I mean, just I'm going to continue this. We can right over here. I mean, because I, I mean, I, I the first part you mentioned, which you were just speaking to, the history. I don't know of any part of human history, any part of human history, and I study human. I mean, I study history, human consciousness a lot. I've visited a number of societies, think about them, know them. I can't think of any culture on the planet 
where women have had complete equality with men. And, and, and it, I mean, so, but this is why we're in such a revolutionary moment. And what do we do with that? I mean, what do we do with that? I mean, when you think about it, right? Yeah. I mean, here's some pessimism for you. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Go ahead. I, I don't think the uh, earth will be around long enough for <laughs> that to happen. <laughs> it, um, it's, it's not, man. Like, it's not going to happen. I mean, we can, <laughs> like, uh, we can, uh, I mean, we have to fight to make things better because we can't just, like, chill and, and accept it. Um, but I don't think that we will ever see a time when women and people of color um, and queer people, everyone, um, is actually seen as equals everywhere. I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, and the, uh, to, to another point that you brought up, you know, I think that's one reason why men don't need to feel threatened. Um, and... Uh, you know, also, if they do feel threatened, threatened then that's their own problem. Yeah. I'll say that. Um, so first of all, I think that when we're talking, when we're thinking about, you know, when, you know, the feminist movement and this whole idea of men being, you know, men in, in, in the hunting and women in the kitchen and all that stuff. You know, when it comes to, I think that from the very beginning, first of all, we weren't all dealt the same hand from the beginning. So black people in this country, um, you know, right now there is, an, the United States is the biggest, is the, is the number one country, the highest rate of mass incarceration, and, and those jails are filled up with black, black men especially, but also just black people generally. So um, I think it's a conversation about equality versus equity right, because we're talking about power structures and we're talking about um, money, right, capitalism and how, and colonialism and how all of that has, capitalism, colonialism and, um, and you know, white supremacy has literally wiped out cultures, you know, um, indigenous Native Americans, uh, you know, black folks. So um, I can say that one way that I am um, trying to deal with how black people talk about rape culture is by getting to the root of, um, of getting an, an understanding of, um, with, our, with men about where we, how we start with that. So not without black women, it's actually in the process of building a men's caucus, a black male's caucus. Um, for men, I'm just serving as the, as the facilitator um, because I don't want more work to do, but I'm allowing the men to lead other men to have these conversations. Um, and it's very important for black people to have that conversation, have those conversations with ourselves because we have a lot of layers, a lot of history, and a lot of things that we need to work out before we're able to feel good enough to have it in a mixed conversation. Because the problem when it's in a conversation where it's like various cultures and stuff is that people don't want to talk about power dynamics. And when you start talking money and when you start talking politics, then that's when you get to get all down to the root and uh, uh, to problems of seeing where a lot of the issues arise. So I, I think that um, generally speaking, you know, when it comes to full-on equality, where we'll be, I, I think that's kind of unrealistic thinking. I think that I don't, I don't, not in my lifetime. I don't think that we're going to see um, where, you know, this idea. We got to really start thinking about where that comes from, where um, this idea that we all are always going to agree all the time, and we're all going to accept each other's cultures and decision making, and um, and it's just not, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, I, and, and because also, too, one example I'll give you is education, right? So Baltimore City, if you pay attention to the education system here in Baltimore City, uh, Western High or Middle School or one of these schools were just, they didn't have heat. And the students had to go on social media, black kids had to go on social media to say, um, we, don't have heat, we don't have heat in our school. And then that's when the city decided to move on it, right? That's a race issue. That's a, you know, that's a... Um, that's a systemic issue um, that's rooted in Baltimore's history that we, that black children deal with in, in, in Baltimore City. So I think that, uh, and also too, our education, um, the way that you get our, get our, like our kids are taught and things that we learn, like that looks different. That looks different for us. That traces back home. You know, um, a lot of the different um, tactics and um, African-centric 
um, you know, um, ways in which our black kids learn, you know, um, that all is very different stuff. And, and there's research and, and there's um, organizations right here in Baltimore that work on specifically these issues. So I would just say support these efforts for, you know, for us to get to, to know. I mean, black folks have, have gone through um, centuries of ethnic cleansing in this country. Um, and so give us a space to do that. Um, but that still does, that doesn't mean that we can't work in partnership or we can't, you know, work together. It's just that we'll nudge you when we need you, you know? Um, we'll, like how I'm saying now, support organizations like Not Without Black Women, um, you know, and getting, and, and, and broadening your, your, your idea, your thinking, um, the way that we all think is not the only way. Um, so I'll leave it at that. I'm going to go over here and then I'm going to try, try to throw a little optimism here in a second, but we'll see if it works. Okay. Um, the play stimulated me to th start thinking about the uh, situation where women are finally coming out and talking about sexual harassment of these very famous people. And I was trying to tie in any message to that, and I can't. I was trying to see if there's a message in the play that relates to the women today that are coming out and talking about these prominent people who've made sexual advances to them. Any of you? Um, Mara? Well, one, one part of the play that I, I think tied to that, not in terms of women coming forward and speaking, but if you remember um, the scene that I was talking about before, actually, where uh, Charlotte Corday is um, in prison after she's uh, committed the assassination. Um, she uh, is checked by um, the people in prison to see if she's a virgin or not. I would call that sexual harassment. I would call that sexual assault. Um, so we do see that in the play. Um, she doesn't, you know, come forward about it because she is about to be dead. But um, that, you know, I think. For, I, I think for, for women, um, for marginalized people in general, a lot of these things um, intersect. And uh, just because we're talking about uh, women's place in a revolution, I think issues like sexual harassment and assault also tie into that. And you know, when we're talking about how, like, with Charlotte Corday, whether or not she was a virgin was somehow relevant. Like, right. So, like, yeah, what's what's going on there? <laughs> and actually, as we said earlier, that the in the back room that, that that particular incident actually occurred, except it occurred after she was killed. That they they did an autopsy. Yeah, because because they uh, I read this I think in the program actually it was a really interesting note. Um, yeah, they they checked uh, after she died to see if she was a virgin or not because they thought there was no way a woman could be. Uh, would have the motivation to uh, be involved in a revolution if not for like some spite out of a uh, for, for a man. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, I mean, as we wrap up a little bit, I mean, I was thinking about the play and what you all were just saying about where we are and where we might never be. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was thinking about. I kind of view the world often in, in a in more of a dialectic than I do as a straight line, right? As I said the last thing, I think the last event we had here, I said that's why I thank both Marx and Buddha for giving me this sense of dialectics in the world, and um, and that that not that without what happened in this play, even though the history is being unearthed in this play. Some of the stuff is new for many people. Without the struggles of Joanne Robinson before Martin Luther King in Montgomery, Alabama, with all of the things that have happened before us, um, there would be no now, right? So I think about people who always say that um, this is not your grandfather, grandparents' revolution. You've heard that expression a lot. That's all right. We're almost done, but good to have you here. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, that that this and I, whenever I hear that, it always bothers me. So I think about the pessimists as well, because 
change doesn't change happens because of the happens of what happened before to push society forward and the force of reaction push backwards and you keep pushing forward. So remember there never is a real end to this. Mm-hmm. But society can push can, can advance mm-hmm. to places where it has not been. You know? I mean, um, we wouldn't be in not to misinterpret this. This is not saying because Barack Obama, became, Barack Obama became president that we ended racism is over. I've never gone there. I never would go there. Um, but without the struggles that led before, 25% of white Americans wouldn't have voted for Barack Obama before this. Mm-hmm. There's an advancement in consciousness happening, and it's being pushed back. So, so I, is it a question of pessimism and optimism? Or just dealing with the reality, we're going to have to continue to struggle to make this world a place where we can live and our children can survive and people can survive after us. And that women are leading the way. And more and more I see women, at, acknowledging women at the forefront of the past is, is now acknowledging women have to be acknowledged as they're doing it in the present, in the forefront. If we're going to get anywhere. I'll, um, I'll say that I, I actually, so um, the, the quote, this is not, what is it? You're, this is not your, your grandparents' revolution or grandmother's revolution. People say I've heard that over and over again. I don't like it either <laughs> um, because I think that, um, and I've heard, I've heard of that in, in many different ways. I think that I can, and I can only just speak from experience. So um, with Not Without Black Women, the way it started is that it was basically um, a, a, a a meeting that I put together that I wanted to have with women. I felt like I was at a point, a time in my life where I wasn't building with enough black women. Um, so I organized an event, um, expected maybe 10 women to come, over 40 women came. Of that, of, of that group of women, it was multi-generational women. So um, a lot of the work that we are doing and what we're um, trying to build is, and what we understand is that L, um, women, Black women who have been doing work in Baltimore, their voices matter. And because they have been here longer, they have been through, they've done this before. Um, And I I have a problem with younger activists and advocates who who don't check in with elders, the elders of of our movements. Um, I actually think it's one of the reasons why we have the biggest in the black community, not just a black community, just a, it's a social movement discussion where we often have, there, there's like this generation gap. Um, and it's like, okay, well the generation gap exists, so how do we fix, how do we change it? Mm-hmm. I'm ready to move on. This is the 21st century and we have a lot of issues to get done. Like, we cannot move forward without being inclusive of, um, of you know, folks, you of people who have been here the longest. So that's the reason why I disagree with when I see that. It actually, it bothers me a lot. Um, but I, I think again, that the reality, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person that just likes to think about reality. Um, I, I tend to not think about the hopes, should have, would have, could have, dreams. I like to deal with what's happening right now and using that information to build off of that, to what is it that we need to do. Um, hope is great, but we also got to deal with what is. And so when it comes to the Me Too movement, what is is that a black woman had been working on rape and sexual assault issues for over 10 years, and she didn't get, recon- didn't get recognized for it until 10, until 10 years, until a celebrity, what was her name? Alyssa Milano. Uh, Thank you. Talked about, or, you know, mentioned, mentioned it. Um, and then folks started to do some research. Um, that's the reality. That's reality, right? We hope, we wish that that wasn't, but it is. So let's deal with it. Let's deal with um, the issues that we have right now um, so that we can figure out how we can create better solutions. We need to, we need to create better solutions, period. Um, and being willing, being willing to say, you know what, this, had, this is not working. If you if you avoid conflict, if you avoid if you when you avoid conflict, you avoid opportunities for change. If things are always the same, if if there if the, if it's just a status quo line and it's not being disrupted, you're not having disagreements, you're not having dialogue. There's a problem. 
So that's what I'd say about that. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah, I, mean, I think that we're all in danger, uh, and the women's voices are very critical on this now about what we're taking in the world. And I think that when you look at it generation, generationally as well, um, people who are elders, and I include myself in that role at this point, even though it's very difficult for me to want to do that sometimes, um, <laughs> um, have to understand the leadership of the young. Just as we were leaders of SNCC and other places down south and the SDS, whatever we were in, we were in our 20s and we were leaders. Mm -hmm. yeah. And younger people have to also acknowledge the power of the elders and older people in terms of what they bring back in that dialogue to keep things moving ahead together. Mm -hmm. Both things are important. Yeah. So, and but and women, and let, let's, let's just close this out because it's, it's getting, it, we have to wrap it up, but just, What's your vision of where you think, I'm thinking about this play, of where, where women can take us now? As leaders, as artists, as writers, as activists. Where women can take us now, when you, when you envision that. Well, women um, historically um, have experienced a lot of vulnerability. And so with that comes knowledge and wisdom and truth. And I think you can speak from a very unique perspective when... Um, when you have um, experienced a lot of, um, you know, sexism and um, oppression and, you know, just general sort of like pain and trauma, there's a, there's a lot to be learned from um, people who have gone through that. So I think that to that extent, women can lead because we can um, reveal a lot about... Um, the vulnerability of the human condition. And there's a lot of there's a lot of truth there that women can share. Right, and there's so much power in vulnerability, and I think that's what the Me Too movement mm -hmm. demonstrates um, more publicly than anything I've ever seen. Um, and uh, in that way, also, I think we're also. Um, We're, we're learning how widespread uh, and uh, uh, how, how many layers there are to, um, to these things. And I think, I think what's interesting now is how people um, in, uh, in larger conversations are understanding the complexities of these things um, and also understanding that it's really hard to wrap your mind around a lot of it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm rambling, but like, yeah, I think that, um, where women are taking us now, um, is just raising the, the right, raise, raising awareness and also raising the standard for the way that we can be, um, the way that the extent to which we should be involved in these discussions you know not just in not just in terms of discussions about the treatment of women but in government in um, in war and uh, yeah um, I think in a couple what do I see um, I mean one thing that I'm working on is I we um, not without black women is consists of a lot of younger uh, college women that we um, that we mentor, so I mean, I could see Baltimore. I mean, what I what I would like for NWBW is, in a couple years, I don't want to be running NWBW. I want the next generation of women a part of the organization to be running NWBW. That's I don't. In some years, I want to be chilling somewhere, you know, because I'm going to be tired. Don't we all? You know, right? <laughs> Self care, right? It needs to be incorporated into movement work as well. So. But I think that um, I would like to see um, just the con continuing to build women leaders um, from a variety of lanes, not just college women, but also, or college, you know, women and teens and girls, but also, um, you know, who lives in, and live in marginalized communities. Right now I'm mentoring um, young girls at uh, Christmas Addicts Rec Recreation Center over in West Baltimore. It was a neighborhood I grew up in as a kid. Um, and so, these are girls who need who need they need they need guidance they need us they need me um and so um 
I think that that will be the future. And I think that over a period of time, things will start to become more clear. It may be really cloudy right now to see, right? Because there's so many issues and there's so many, I swear like every day, I'm just like pissed at something, right? Um, but I do know that the, the greatest, one thing I've learned in my work is that the greatest, I'm, I am my best self when I've been through the greatest pain. And that's what keeps me going. And if we keep that inside of all of us and we do that, I think that we can get really far. Well, I'm gonna thank the panel here. Thank you all for coming out too. Give you all a round of applause. Thanks for this panel. Danielle Astanion, Brittany Oliver, Mark Allen. It was a great conversation. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Can we please give one round of applause for our fantastic moderator, Mark Steiner? Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belvidia. Download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at steinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.